The text for our sermon tonight, Isaiah chapter 53, verses 7 through 9. Isaiah 53, 7 through 9. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Let us pray. O Heavenly Father, thy word is perfect, restoring the soul, making wise the simple, and enlightening the eyes of the blind, the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes. We, however, are by nature blind and incapable of doing anything good, and Thou wilt relieve only those who have a broken and contrite heart and who revere Thy Word. We entreat Thee that Thou wouldst illumine our darkened minds with Thy Holy Spirit and give us a humble heart, free from all haughtiness and carnal wisdom, in order that we, hearing Thy Word, may rightly understand it and regulate our lives accordingly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In the first sermon on this series, we, we saw that man's natural response to the gospel is unbelief. And we traced out the fact that unbelief is such a prevalent sin. In the second sermon, we saw that this unbelief is rooted in our unwillingness to see our own hideousness. When we look at the gruesome sufferings of Christ and His death, we are seeing just how ugly and vile our sin really is. And therefore, we don't see Jesus as a beautiful Savior. His sufferings are ugly and unattractive to those who don't believe that they need them. For the past two Wednesdays, we have seen that Christ's suffering and death were substitutionary in nature. Everything He endured was for us. It was for our sins and iniquities that He was beaten, bruised, whipped, and crucified. He suffered and died in our place. Tonight, as we plunge even deeper into Christ's sufferings, we learn of His calm resignation to the will of God. And our outline then is as follows. His resignation, or His suffering, number one. His calm resignation, number two. And thirdly, His reward. His suffering. He suffered for sins not His own. Now, we've looked at this aspect of Christ's work many times, but it's something that can't be overemphasized. Christ's work on our behalf was that of a surety. A surety is someone who guarantees an agreement, or in this case, a covenant. A surety swears to shoulder all responsibility for the fulfillment of the terms. And in His office as our surety, Christ took upon Himself personal responsibility to pay the debt that we owed to God. In our sermon on verses 2 and 3, which we entitled, The Unattractive Savior, we looked in detail at how ugly and how evil this sin is. And it might serve us well to retrace a bit of what we said before. And in doing that, we have to recognize that our view of sin and our view of God's holiness are intimately related. A person who has a low view of sin will correspondingly have a low view of God's holiness. And the higher one's view is of God's holiness, the worse he will correspondingly see sin. 
Now we talked at length about how the Scriptures liken sin to the most disgusting and repulsive things imaginable. And this is done to bring before our, our, our eyes just how hateful sin is to God. Now, if our very righteousness is as filthy menstruous rags, what must our sin be? And I pointed out before that the one way to see just how evil sin is in the sight of God is to look and consider the creation of man. The Bible describes God merely speaking all things into existence. But when it came to man, God formed him with deliberation and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The Bible says that God made man in his own image and likeness as the very pinnacle of creation. And yet man, this masterpiece, this pinnacle of creation, is the only creature that God will condemn to eternal hell along with the devil and his demons. But for all the ugly and hideous things that can be said about sin, it must be remembered, this is the most important thing, that it is open rebellion against God. One thinks of the Ten Commandments and how every day the news is full of reports of crimes, full of reports of the behavior of celebrities, full of reports about the, the content of entertainment. And all of it is nothing but sustained violations of the Ten Commandments. Scripture describes mankind separated from God as covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. And everywhere you look, you see this depravity. Every nation on earth makes laws because of it. Every penal code, every prison cell, every electric chair, every lock on our doors testifies to the sinfulness of man. And of course, the greatest indicator of the blinding nature of sin is that in the face of thousands of years of murder, theft, war, and genocide, mankind still thinks he's basically and essentially good. The Puritan preacher Ralph Venning wrote, Here then is the desperately wicked nature of sin. Not only is it high treason, against the majesty of God, but it scorns to confess its crime. Mankind routinely hides behind euphemisms for sin. White lie, weakness, slip up, love affair, crime of passion, all words designed to intentionally mask the true evil of the acts and the hearts from which these acts proceed. These are terms designed to divert attention away from the personal responsibility of the guilty. Now even before sin entered into the world, our first parents owed God, mankind owed God perfect obedience. God is the Creator. We are His creatures. And as creatures, we are obligated to obey the will of our Creator without the least, without the slightest deviation. The fall did not relieve man of this duty. Man still owes God perfect obedience. But perfect obedience is more than just external compliance. Jesus taught that a person could be guilty of murder without shedding a drop of blood. 
Perfect obedience requires external compliance that springs from a holy heart. But that's the thing we do not have. Our catechism teaches us that we are wholly incapable of doing anything good, that inclined to all wickedness, and that apart from the regenerating work of God, these sinful inclinations reign in us. Furthermore, it teaches us that even now that we are born again, we have still grossly transgressed all the commandments of God and kept none of them, and are still inclined to all evil. And question 113 teaches us that the law of God requires that even the smallest inclination or thought contrary to any of God's commandments never rise in our hearts. So you see, being born in original sin, we all enter this world in a bottomless pit of debt to God. External compliance to God's law is never recognized in God's sight as true obedience. Supposing the impossible, that you were able to live a thousand years without a single external violation in word or deed, you still wouldn't have made a dent in the original debt that you owe to God. And the reason why is you would never have actually rendered true obedience to the law of God. You can do all the right things externally, but God is not slickered by this because He sees our hearts And he knows that by nature, we hate righteousness. So when we say that Christ suffered as our surety, we're saying that the debt of the elect was laid to his charge and that it was exacted of him in full. And we can see this in the way that the Scriptures describe Christ and his sufferings. First of all, Scripture routinely describes Christ's sufferings as being for his people. So in Luke 24, Jesus says to His disciples, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory? In Zechariah 13.7, we read one of the passages Jesus is referring to. It says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. This text speaks of Christ, the Good Shepherd, co-equal with the Father, who will be stricken for the sheep. <coughs> Excuse me. God's covenant with Adam, with Abraham, the covenant of grace, was actually established with Christ in eternity. But in time, it was first instituted, declared in the Garden of Eden after mankind fell into sin. This covenant of grace replaced the broken covenant with Adam. And so Hebrews 7.22 calls Jesus the surety of the better covenant. Jesus was the surety of the covenant of grace. He is the guarantor. All the Old Testament sacrifices, which by the way were substitutionary deaths for sinners, they all looked forward to Christ's sacrifice. Whenever the Old Testament saints offered sacrifices on God's altar, they were proclaiming their faith in Jesus, the Lamb of God who was yet to come. We can also see Christ's suretyship in the words that Scripture uses to describe His sufferings. His sufferings are called a purchase. It's called a redemption. It's called propitiation. And these are all words that imply personal responsibility to cover debt. 
This is what we mean by calling Christ the surety of the covenant. He was taking upon Himself personal responsibility to pay our debt to God. Now our text from last week reads, but He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. His sufferings were in the place of the elect. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That is what is known as double imputation. Our guilt was charged to Christ's account, and Christ's righteousness is reckoned to our account. The Old Testament sacrifices, as we have repeatedly seen, taught this doctrine. An innocent lamb was killed in the place of a guilty sinner, and that guilty sinner's guilt was forgiven by God. In Galatians 3, 13 and 14 we read, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, the point of all that we've said so far is this. The debt of the sins of the elect was strictly exacted of Christ. In the words of the parable, Christ paid the uttermost farthing. The debt of the elect's sins was exacted of Christ to the full. And that leads us to our second point, which is Christ's calm resignation in His suffering. He bore it all with calm resignation. Our text reads, He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before His shearers is silent, so He opened not His mouth. Now there is prophetic purpose In mentioning Christ being led as a lamb to the slaughter, His death was the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament sacrificial system. Every single lamb, goat, cow, and dove that was offered during the entire Old Testament era was a foreshadowing of Christ. When Christ was sacrificed, He did in very fact what all those Old Testament sacrifices merely signified. He removed the sins of His people. This is a fact that is clear even in the Old Testament. In Psalm 50, verse 13, God says, Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? In Isaiah 40, verse 16, we read, Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for burnt offering." In Micah 6, verse 7, we read, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Paul picks up on this idea in Hebrews and says that if these sacrifices had actually removed sin, then they wouldn't have been repeated. But they were repeated. Israel had a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice every single day of the year. And that doesn't count all the other sacrifices for individuals, for the priests themselves, and for the nation. When Solomon dedicated the temple, he sacrificed 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. If animal sacrifices were actually effective to take away sins, surely enough were sacrificed at the dedication of the temple. But alas, those sacrifices could not take away sin nor were they intended to. 
And this would have also been obvious to even the most casual observer. You know, here I am, a sinful human, but dying in my place is an irrational animal, a beast without an immortal soul. Question 16 of our catechism teaches us that the justice of God requires that the same human nature which hath sinned should likewise make satisfaction for sin. So the mention of sheep and sacrifice is linking Christ's atoning death to the atoning typified in the Old Testament sacrificial system. From the moment He was born, Jesus' eyes were fixed on the cross. In John 12.27, Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. As Paul writes, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame. But now we have to consider Christ's silence. And His silence indicates three things. His silence was an indication of His suretyship. Three times between Matthew 26.63 and 27.14, Matthew records that Jesus kept silent. And each time was in the face of a grave criminal charge. In holding his peace, Christ was accepting full responsibility for the sins of the elect. His silence was also an indication of his humble submission to the will of God. Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead the third day. In Psalm 39, verse 9, Jesus speaks thus, I do not open my mouth because it is you who have done it. Christ willingly and cheerfully complied with His Father's will. Lo, I come, behold, in the volume of the book it is written of me, I delight to do Thy will, O my God. Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Jesus was smart enough and powerful enough to have evaded His arrest and execution, but He willingly took on Himself the office of surety for the broken covenant. By His life, He provides perfect righteousness to those who believe in Him. And by His death, He provides perfect forgiveness of sins. His silence was a demonstration of His willingness to be our substitute. He was, in the words of Scripture, obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And thirdly, His silence was an admission that the sentence was just. And this is a point that we seldom, if ever, consider. Christ's silence was an indication that He saw and acknowledged the justice of the penalty for our sins. He didn't complain because the suffering was fair. What's the most common thing convicted criminals do? They protest their innocence. It wasn't me. I didn't do it. Unless they're caught in the act, they're not likely to admit what they've done, and even then they'll protest the procedure of their trial, the, they'll protest their inept legal defense, they'll protest the fairness of the sentence. If you ever do any kind of prison ministry, or even if you just visit someone in jail, the first thing that usually happens is an inmate will approach you, he'll behave in what seems to be a genuinely friendly and respectful demeanor, 
Very quickly, though, the conversation will turn to a defense of his innocence. You see, he's coming to you since you represent a link to the outside world and one that's not already associated with his criminal defense team. It's even common for criminals who have signed confessions to later allege that their confession was coerced. Criminals often confess to something a rung or two below the original charge just so that they can get a lesser sentence. Denial of guilt is so common that for those handful of cases where a person is wrongfully convicted, the conviction is almost impossible to get overturned because people who work in the justice system deal with non-stop denials of guilt. The only ones who have a right to protest are the ones who aren't guilty of the crime that they have been convicted of. But they're not likely to be believed because the system is flooded with protests by men who are undeniably guilty. There is only one reason why a person would not protest his innocence. And that reason is recognition of one's guilt and the justice of the sentence. And this is an extremely rare thing. You'll recall that there were two criminals crucified on either side of Jesus. And the Bible says that one of the criminals mocked him. In Luke 23, we read, Then one of the criminals who was hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. One of the marks of this man's conversion unto God was the fact that he didn't justify himself. He justified God by acknowledging his own sins and accepting the fairness of his sentence. True repentance says in the words of David, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you might be justified when you speak and clear when you judge. You see, the thief on the cross acknowledged his sin. He acknowledged the justice of his punishment. He acknowledged the righteousness of Christ. And he acknowledged Jesus as his Savior who would reign as Lord. His actions and his words showed his acceptance of the penalty that he endured. But as 1 Peter 2.20 says, what credit is it if When you are beaten for your faults, you bear it patiently. Yeah, this man showed great patience in his suffering, but he was only suffering what his actions fairly had merited. It's not heroic to take your well-deserved lumps. In the case of Jesus, though, we have an entirely different category. Jesus suffered with calm and quiet resolve. He, too, acknowledged the justice of God and the fairness of the penalty. And here's where our other observations earlier all tie together. Jesus was personally innocent. And his silence is an indication that he knew that he was acting as surety for guilty sinners. Just like the innocent sacrificial lamb that doesn't drag its heels and fight being slain on the altar, Jesus went willingly and quietly to the cross. But because he was personally sinless, Jesus recognized better than any human being could the justice of the penalty that he bore. You see, God never overacts. Let me repeat that. God never overacts. 
When He judges, He judges with infinite and perfect equity. No one will ever be able to say that God meted out a punishment that was more severe than the crime merited. No one. We may not be able to fully comprehend God's justice since we are sinners, but we can comprehend the fact that since God is just, He will always judge in righteousness. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? No man who has ever lived could have seen this truth better than Jesus. And therefore, Jesus' silence was an admission that everything He suffered was entirely and fairly deserved. And lest we forget the mocking, the scourging, the punching, the crown of thorns, the nails in His hands and feet, the spear in His side, these were all peanuts compared to the outpoured wrath of God. So severe was this torment that our Heidelberg Catechism describes his suffering as inexpressible anguish, pains, and terrors, and further calls them hellish agonies in which he was plunged during all his sufferings, but especially on the cross. When we confess in the creed that he descended into hell, we are saying that all of the eternal torment of hell was heaped upon Christ while he suffered on the cross. And we know that this is true because the very last words he spoke as he was dying were, it is finished. Every single last drop of God's infinite wrath against sin was poured onto Christ and he exhausted it. The full payment for the debt of the elect was exacted of him. Let me reiterate. Christ held his silence because everything he endured was perfectly righteous and holy justice. Had he protested, he would have been slandering the justice of God. The hellish agonies of his death, the inexpressible anguish, pains, and torments he endured were not overkill. They were 100% fair and they were 100% ours, which he paid in full as our surety. And that brings us to our third point, which is the reward of his suffering. As we look to this final point this evening, there are two points of contrast that I want to draw your attention to. The first isn't really directly related to our point, but it's a, it's a running theme through the whole chapter. And this is the contrast between he and we. This points to the doctrine of substitution, and I trust that you can see this. Isaiah repeatedly points out what he suffered. And Isaiah repeatedly points out that it was we who deserved it. Seventeen times Isaiah speaks of Christ in this chapter as He. And Isaiah puts Christ into our places as our substitute eight times. It's a factor of more than two to one. It's a way of saying that Christ is a complete Savior. He is more than sufficient to provide all the blessings of the covenant. The second point of contrast is directly related to our point, and that's the contrast that is made in verse 9 between his burial and his grave. One is said to be with the rich and noble, the other is said to be with sinners. The Hebrew word, which we translate as in his death, 
signifies something like a monument or a memorial. It's as if the text is saying, his grave was placed with the wicked, but his tomb was with the rich. There was dishonor in his death, and yet there was honor in his burial. A band of wicked soldiers was placed at his tomb, and yet this tomb and the funeral itself was all covered at the expense of a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. This was supposed to be Joseph's grave. And he gave it to Christ. Actually, he just loaned it to him. He got it back good as new three days later. The honor afforded to Christ in his burial was a foreshadowing, a prophetic display of what was to come, or as our text calls it, his generation. The term generation is a very significant biblical term. Almost without fail, it refers to one's offspring or posterity. And in the covenant of grace, this is a term that is loaded with divine favor. Scripture declares, God is with the generation of the righteous. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Most significantly, though, we find this expression in Psalm 22, which next to Isaiah 53 is the passage of the Old Testament that most explicitly speaks of Christ's sufferings. Psalm 22, verse 30 says, A seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. In our passage, and the related passage of Psalm 22, 30, God is promising that Christ's death will not be unfruitful. When he is raised from the dead, he will have a spiritual seed. That is a seed according to the promise. His generation will be a multitude which no man can number of those who believe in him and those that are adopted by him into the number of the children of God. In Psalm 22, 22, Jesus says, I will declare your name among my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. And in Isaiah 8, 18, Christ proclaims, here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me. Now since this is prophecy, it is looking forward. And in a very real sense, it's showing us that Christ is looking forward. As Paul puts it in Hebrews, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 